I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to Trafe, the only Jewish podcast to take a very generous Christmas vacation. I just checked the database, and David, you are correct. The database? I don't know, the database Jewish podcast? Not database? Database. But we were away for quite some time. We took a break for a month or two. And uh, why, why was that, Sam? We took a break because I was studying for the bar exam in the province of Quebec, Canada, North America, world. For all that time studying. I never want to sit at a desk and look at a book again. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to have you back here and away from the world of legal textbooks. Yes, I'm very happy to be back in the studio. It's a new Gregorian year. Yeah, Happy New Year, Sam. Uh, thank you, David. Same to you. Did you do anything exciting on, on New Year's Eve? Yeah, I went to the annual New Year's Eve noise demonstration. Just outside of Montreal, there is a series of prisons that are all clustered together. And so about 100, 150 of us take a series of school buses out there every year. And we just light off some fireworks, uh, make a lot of noise and show solidarity to folks inside. And this isn't something that only happens in Montreal. It happens across North America, I think. Yeah, I mean, if you're curious about this, you never heard about it before, there is a great episode of a podcast called From Embers about the tradition of prison noise demonstrations. Then I'll just put a link in the show notes so you can check that out. Good old show notes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought we could maybe just set some intentions for the new year of the show. But David, before we look forward, I think it might be wise to take a moment and look backwards. Oh, that's a very good point. You know, the first few years of the show had different themes to them. Like the first one was sort of trying to respond to Jewish media a lot. Yeah. And then in the following year, we kind of moved on from responding to the news explicitly and then focused more on different Jewish leftist formations in North America and talked to a bunch of people who are involved in different kind of organizing. Yeah. And so this year on the show, we're, we're sort of going in this direction more gradually over the past year anyway. But... What we're trying to focus on is having conversations about the ideas that are animating a lot of the political conversations that we find ourselves having. And while that might sound intentionally vague, it kind of is. Um, We don't have a clear game plan necessarily, but we wanted to try this different course and kind of see how it goes. If folks have ideas, please get in touch, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, and so we wanted to start off the year with a series of conversations we've been having about fascism and the rise of far-right movements across not just where we live, but all over the world. Okay, David, I know that this is a hobby horse of yours. (laughs) Um, This is something you've been pushing for the last couple months, and we are finally at the beginning stages of it. Can you talk a little bit about why you think this is so important right now? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why, but one of them is that Uh, In this particular moment, I think that the radical left, or at least the anarchist parts of the radical left that I feel very strongly embedded in here, I'm finding is having a hard time being able to articulate very coherently uh, the degree to which the rise of these far-right movements represents continuity or a discontinuity from what we've seen before. And because of that, I think a lot of liberal narratives about how to understand what's happening right now are sort of taking over. And what we're hoping to do is through conversations, get a clear understanding of what we're seeing happen. And we have two people on the show today who are going to help us begin this process. Yeah, two relatively unrelated conversations about fascism. Um, The first person that we're talking to is Gord Hill. Gord is an indigenous author, an activist. He's been involved in anti-colonial and anti-capitalist movements here for several decades. And he's a member of the Kwakwakwak Nation and recently published the Antifa comic book with Arsenal Pulp Press. 
Yeah, it was it was really cool to chat with him. He also wrote the 500 Years of Resistance comic book and the Anti-Capitalist Resistance comic book. And for our second interview, we talked with Shira Klein, who's a professor at Chapman University, and we discussed her relatively recent book, Italy's Jews from Emancipation to Fascism. Yeah, I mean, I've sort of read about Jewish support for fascism in Italy for quite some time, and and Shira's book is the first real study that I've come across uh, talking about this historically, trying to understand it. Um, and so it was really interesting to talk to her. And so without further ado, here's your episode of Trafe for the 14th of Adar, 5779. <laughs> Uh, my name is Gord Hill. I'm from the Kwakwakiwak Nation, and I live on the west coast of uh, British Columbia. And I've been involved in the anarchist and anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, and indigenous resistance movements for uh, many years. <laughs> Um, we wanted to chat about your relatively new book called The Antifa Comic Book. And to kind of get things started, can you just chat a little bit about how it came together, who's the intended audience, and like, what was your goal in putting this together? It's a lot of questions. <laughs> okay, well, about uh, over a year ago, like last September in uh, 2017, uh, Arsenal Pulp Press contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in working on an Antifa comic book because of the events in Charlottesville the Unite the Right rally, where Heather Hare was killed by the neo-Nazi, drove his car into the rally. So I started working on it. The audience it's intended for is the anti-fascist movement, and generally people who might be interested in what Antifa is and its history. So it's a history of fascism and anti-fascist resistance movements. So anybody who might have an interest in, you know, the origins of the fascist movement as we know it today, or, uh, you know, how anti-fascist resistance fought against the rise of fascist movements through the 20s and the 30s, even up until today. So that's generally what the book is. As, as a reader of the book, I found that it had a bit of a different feel or flavor from some of your previous work. And I'm, I'm curious if for you it feels that way. Oh, yeah, it, it is really different for me. because I mean, with the 500 Years of Indigenous comic book, I mean, some of those comics I'd done like 2004, 2005. So they're like almost 15 years old now. So uh, I became more proficient in the craft of making graphic stories. And there is a connection between, you know, capitalism, fascist movements, and colonialism. But I don't really get into that in the comic books. Because with this comic book, I didn't have a lot of time to do a, a bigger analysis about fascism and capitalism and Western society and that. So I just stuck to the most basic thing, fascist movements, anti-fascist resistance, to get the comic produced as quickly as possible because that's what the publishers wanted. So it's not a big part of the comic book. Yeah, I, I mean, before the book, at least the writing of yours that I've read, mostly focused on resistance to colonialism and to capitalism, both yeah. movements you've been a part of for some time. And I, I'm curious if you've also been a part of anti-fascist work in, in a similar way or had a similar relationship between the writing happening with this project. Yeah, back in the, uh, the late 80s to the mid-90s, I was involved in um, anti-fascist organizing in Vancouver and different anti-racist mobilizations. So one rally, 
when uh, Tony McAleer, who was a neo-Nazi skinhead at the time, was organizing to bring Tom Metzger from the late Aryan Resistance up to Vancouver. But we organized a massive counter-rally, and it was, uh, we had a very large militant contingent. We found out where the hotel was that the meeting was supposed to occur at, and then we marched up to it and surrounded it, and the neo-Nazi skinheads had to basically run for their lives out the back door to escape. But we had a lot of success, I think. The neo-Nazi movement in Vancouver never really got to be very large, and we learned a lot from ARA Toronto and some of the other groups that were active at the time. I'd done a lot of research during those years about the fascist movements, especially those that were active at the time, like Aryan Nations, Aryan Resistance Movement, and I was able to use that as kind of a basis to start with, but if I had to do a lot of research, or relearning even, about fascist Italy, that one I just thought was really important as a basis for starting the novel. But anyway, yeah, I, I was involved in anti-fascist organizing up until the mid-90s or so, yeah. Yeah, I also, I kind of want to get back to something you were saying earlier about analysis. You know, you didn't have a lot of time to get into maybe like a broader analysis of how you understand fascism. Um, Because I just, I've been thinking a lot lately about the way of understanding fascism, sort of first wave European fascism, as a form of colonialism come home to roost, so to speak. Yeah. Like that understanding has sort of been taken out from the mainstream history of fascism, like even sometimes on the left? And I'm wondering if you've noticed this as well. Um, I mean, if you look at Italy, I mean, they were involved in Northern Africa. They had colonies in Northern Africa. Same with Germany. I mean, they had colonies in Africa by the late 1800s and the genocide they committed there. And those same soldiers came back, the same military forces came back. I think you could like extend the analysis of the roots of fascism, I think, back to the Roman imperial system. So they adopted a lot of the same symbols, the Roman salute, which we now know as the fascist salute, the eagle standard, like all this type of stuff comes from the Roman Empire. And of course, that's one of the origins of Western civilization, colonialism, imperialism, going out, conquering new lands, expansion. I mean, this is all part of the fascist politics that we know today. But like I said, I just didn't really have time to uh, get into it. (laughs) So bringing things back to the present moment, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the growth of the far right relates to settler colonialism in so-called Canada? Well, I think the motivator for this resurgence of fascist and far right movements today is uh, largely immigration. And and if you look back in history, you can see periods of time when the far right has experienced a very large resurgence. Like back in the late 60s, early 70s with the National Front in Britain, it was about immigration. That's what made the National Front grow to become this much larger entity. And through the history of fascist movements, the rise and decline of them, you know, since the 60s, immigration has been a big part of it. And I think that's the same today. The conflict in Syria and the exodus of hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees, different countries taking them in, like they they use it to exploit people's fears about immigrants, people of color. And in Canada, I mean, with the rise of a far right, you would see more of a settler colonial reactions against indigenous movements but i think their main focus right now is like islamophobia i think that's their main recruiting tool anti-immigration in general people of color immigrant in particular i think these are the biggest things that are the motors pushing the growth of the far right today um where we're living we've got to see the rise of the far right in ways that are quite disturbing and one thing that's been an interesting difference from maybe like the last wave in the 90s at least where we are is that the groups that they're targeting are slightly different. So 
in in the 1990s, you know, like indigenous peoples here were definitely a target. Jewish people were a target in a way that perhaps they're still targets, but they're not in the top of the list. And in the Jewish communities that we're from, there's definitely some attempt to recruit. And I'm wondering if you've seen this happening in different indigenous communities, if the far right is trying to reach out as well. Yeah, well, I think you, you, we had the incidents in uh, Ganawagi a few months ago where, where Lamut, which is the far-right organization that's really large in Quebec, attempted to hold a rally in Ganawagi, and they're obviously trying to build some kind of alliance with Indigenous people there. I mean, at those Lamut rallies, there's always a couple people with the warrior flag walking around as well. So for some far-right groups, this might be a way to like say, oh, we're not really racist, you know, we're reaching out to these Indigenous people. But it's all a different context. If you go to Saskatchewan and Manitoba and you have a resurgence of the far right, I mean, Indigenous people are going to be a main target. In Toronto, you have a large immigrant population and more refugees coming in, and the far right, that's their main focus. And the same with the rallies in Ottawa and, you know, these anti-Islam rallies. But Saskatchewan and Manitoba, the refugee thing isn't the top of the list there, so that, you know, anti-Indigenous racism becomes even more prevalent. You know, you see all the incidents, Thunder Bay, you know, Saskatoon and that, and all these different assaults, even murders occurring. So I, I think the context changes from place to place. What do you think people today on the radical left don't understand about fascism? What do you think are some of the things that you came across while doing your research that you think folks on the radical left aren't uh, engaging with enough or, or don't understand about fascism and the far right? Well, I think looking historically, there's always been this underestimation of the far right and its capabilities. So in fascist Italy, uh, the Socialist Party and the Communist Party, I don't think they really took the threat seriously. And so they actually uh, prevented their members from participating in the armed resistance, which was the Arditi del Popolo, an armed anti-fascist formation that was created after the Black Shirt, which was the fascist paramilitary group, began this kind of campaign of terror and uh, murder and assaults on the left. And in Nazi Germany, again, um, they really underestimated the ability of the Nazis. You know, the, the Nazis were on the verge of gaining power, you know, when Hitler was given the chancellorship. The slogan of the Communist Party in Germany was, after Hitler, us. After the Nazis fail, it'll be our turn. The communists, the revolutionary left, that's going to be our moment. And today I think they're still they're underestimated because... Because when you look at them, and this was the same with the Nazis from what I gathered back in the 20s and now, when you look at them, they kind of look like buffoons and clowns, you know, dangerous, but just kind of like idiots. And you look at the far right, you know, and you got these uh, guys showing up wearing a flag as a cape, and they're wearing this old Greek armor and stuff like that. They look like idiots, and you can't really take them seriously. But there's elements within their whole movement that are really thinking, you know, they obviously have alliances with wealthy individuals who are financing them and whatnot. And generally, it's actually, it's still a very small movement or a composition of movements. But you can see the dangers that they represent. Even though they're a small movement, you know, you've had two or three dozen murders in the last two or three years carried out by far-right individuals, including massacres in synagogues, you know, mosques, uh, the Sikh temple shootings in the States. I mean... In Italy, the left was completely unprepared for the fascist offensive. You know, the Socialist Party, very big, very large party. They controlled entire regions of Italy, and within months, their organization was dismantled and basically destroyed by the black shirts. There's still that element today where a lot of leftists, they don't take the threat seriously, they don't understand the threat, basically underestimate the fascist threat. 
So, Gord, before we let you go, um, David and I have a segment on the show where we kind of give a congratulations or a big ups to a person, a group, a thing that's happening. We call it a shkoyach. Do you have a yep. shkoyach to give to anyone, to to an activist group, to resistance that's happening now? Uh, maybe the uh, the getting them clan in the Unistan who are facing imminent police raid in order to force through a pipeline up in uh, northern BC. And they've been out there for uh, many years, since 2010 or 2011, I think, that Unistad and have had their camp there to stop pipelines. So that would be my choice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, our eyes are were on Twitter before this and will continue to be on after, waiting to hear word from what's happened with folks out there. Um, so yeah, our thoughts are with them as well. Yeah. Depending on when this episode comes out, we'll probably have more updates on, on where things are at. But Gord, yeah. thank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, especially today, all right. as all our thoughts are, are with folks in Unistotin. Thanks for taking the time. All right, thanks for having me. Palestinian, black and brown leadership, indigenous teachers telling stories of their struggles and teaching their wisdom, skill shares and campaigns to join and uh, really beautiful organizing and teaching and learning. So big shout out to all of the folks from U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights who work so hard all the time and put on an incredible conference. Um, I'm really honored to be part of such a powerful movement. See you at the next conference. I'm a professor of history at Chapman University, which is in Orange County in California. I teach uh, modern Jewish history. My training is in modern Jewish history, and I just wrote a book called Italy's Jews from Emancipation to Fascism. I came out with Cambridge University Press in um, early 2018. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So we invited you on to talk about your recent book, and I was hoping that you could just start by giving a little bit of context about how the book came together. 
That's a good question. Um, I was doing a PhD in Jewish history at New York University and I started on a particular topic and then discovered that I didn't like it and I was sort of in a vacuum and searching frantically for what to study. Uh, I had Italian as a third language and I wanted to travel somewhere beautiful and I had an interest in the modern period and particularly in World War II and I, I put all that together and the book is the end result of a, of a process that took, I would say, 10 years from start to finish. And the book has different sections, but the section of the book that we wanted to talk the most about is a section that deals with the mass support for fascism that existed among Italian Jews, you know, both before fascism gained state power, but also during the first 15 years of Mussolini's rule. And I was wondering when you first learned about that history and whether it was something that surprised you. It did absolutely surprise me because coming into this topic without knowing much about it, I had this notion of fascism as something fairly scary. Fascism had persecuted Jews in Italy, so I was surprised to find that Italian Jews, by and large, did not oppose fascism, and some of them fervently supported it, and uh, I would say most of them accepted it or, or were just indifferent to it, but very few vehemently opposed it. And I'd known about a few famous Jews, what I would call celebrity fascists, and those were pretty well known, I'd heard of them, but the more research I did, the more I discovered this sort of acceptance of fascism that was almost a given for most Jews. And again, in different degrees, some would ardently support it and others were just indifferent or didn't really care, but certainly didn't oppose it. And the anti-fascist Jews, uh, and there were some famous uh, anti-fascist Jews as well, they never actually attracted a mass following. When we're talking today about the relationship between Jews and fascism, we're often looking at the historical example of Germany and we're doing this for obvious reasons, but why do you think the example of Italy has been rarely examined in comparison? Why are we talking about it less? That, that's an astute question because in the context of modern Jewish history, no country has been studied as much as Germany. And Italy definitely lags behind in the historiography, in other words, in, in the volume and of research that has been done on that country. I think part of the reason Italy lags behind so much is that there's this assumption that Mussolini was small fry, so to speak, and that whatever Italy did under fascism never was more than a pale imitation of big bad Germany. And, and this is where we get into another of the book's points, which is what historians call the myth of the good Italian. And the idea is that Italian conduct, both before and during the war, was really relatively benign, not just towards its Jews, but um, Italian occupation of the Balkans, Italian colonization of Africa. They were all really not so bad, and particularly when it comes to Jews, Italy's main role has been seen as saving Jews from the Germans. And, and historians have recently exposed that as a myth, and that's uh, why they call it the myth of the good Italian. Uh, and my book definitely builds on what historians have said about that. Um, but I think, I think that myth is still very much around outside of academia, so for people who don't really study this. And that's one of the reasons that Italy has received far less attention is this misguided uh, notion that um, actually Italy didn't really uh, do anything serious under fascism or during the war. Yeah, and in reading the book, I was actually really surprised. There's one part of the book you write about on the eve of the government takeover that Jews in Italy were disproportionately represented in the fascist party itself. 
and you give you give different explanations for this support and representation in the book. Uh, but it seems like the most direct one has to do with class. And I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about how that worked. Well, to understand why Jews in Italy supported fascism, you have to go back a few years and uh, look at Italy of the teens and 20s of the 20th century. And Italy in the 19 teens and 1920s was incredibly polarized. So to the left, so one uh, one polar was the left, made up of a, a militant working class. These were workers who faced very harsh conditions on the factory floors, uh, very little representation in government, sort of no um, maximum hours, no minimum age, really difficult conditions. To the right of the political spectrum was the middle class, and these were people like factory managers, uh, white-collar professionals, and they feared an uprising by the workers. And in the center, in between these two polars, was, was a fairly weak government that the left felt was not doing enough for the left, and the right felt uh, was not doing enough to stop the left. And so what you get in, uh, right after uh, World War I in particular is that workers staged enormous strikes, and we're talking about land grabs and closures of factories that would disable the economy for weeks on end. And the middle class responded by saying, we need a more authoritarian government. And that's really how fascism comes to power on the shoulders of the middle class, who is extremely fearful of Bolshevist-style revolution, as, as it happened in Russia. Now, Jews were more likely to be in the middle class, and therefore they were more likely to breathe an audible sigh of relief when Mussolini marched on Rome in 1922 and soon after ends the government as it was and sets up uh, the, the fascist regime. Because to them, as authoritarian as Mussolini might be, what Mussolini represented to them was the end of the fear of a working class revolt that they had a lot to lose from, right? So they were very pleased when Mussolini comes to power and that's one of the reasons I found in memoirs, in letters, in the sources that I looked at, the reasons that Jews were giving for supporting fascism, or as I said, at least accepting it. And in this climate of upheaval, um, how did anti-Semitism in the country play into this dynamic? Well, going back to your question on, on Germany and, and the comparison between them, this ties into that as well, because I mean, Mussolini was not Hitler, right? And and fascism was not Nazism. And I think one of the differences between them was that for Nazism, there were two clear enemies. One was the left and the other was the Jews. In Italy, for the right, for fascism, Jews were never a central enemy. And, uh, and it's not to say that fascism was not anti-Semitic. It certainly was. But really, the main enemy for fascism was a class enemy. And so the relative absence of anti-Semitism as a party agenda for fascism played into the fact that Jews could uh, more comfortably support fascism. But I do want to say that anti-Semitism was rife as part of public opinion and as part of fascism and as part of Catholic teachings and, and, and it was everywhere in Italy. So it's not to say that it didn't exist. It certainly did, but it wasn't there as a party agenda in the same way that it was for Nazism. So something that also struck me from the book was you attributed this at least partially to um, the lack of migration of Eastern European Jews and that the fascist regime just didn't have Jewish immigration as an issue. And so can, uh, can you maybe just talk a bit about how that played out and, and what that meant for anti-Semitism there? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and I and I struggled with writing that uh, portion of the book because I didn't want it to seem as though I was saying there were fewer Eastern European Jews in Italy, therefore there was less to be anti-Semitic about. Really what I was trying to, to get at was that in places like Germany, France, Britain, New York, Generally, wherever immigrants went in large numbers, anti-Semites would pounce on that and say, look, they're so different from us. They're unassimilable. They speak a different language. They wear different clothes. They work in different jobs. In Italy, there wasn't that excuse for anti-Semites. There just wasn't a very large migration by Eastern European Jews. And, and probably the main reason for that was economic, because Italy wasn't as leading a power economically as Britain or Germany or, or America or France. But there were plenty of other things that anti-Semites in Italy did say. And one thing that you see more so in Italy than in other countries is the Catholic strain of anti-Semitism, the idea of Jews Jews as uh, Christ killers or ideas about Jews being deformed or having a tail or having six fingers on their hand or uh, having little horns under their hair or uh, things like that. Those, those definitely surface in Italy in the interwar period. So we actually, we actually come from Quebec, where the residue of the Catholic Church perception of Jews still persists today. <laughs> Um, you get that too, tails. And yes. Oh, I mean, like fingers. not not my generation, but it's not that far removed. Yeah. Um, right. The right. church kind of only lost power in the '60s. So, anyways. interesting. Wow. So, so we actually uh, give these workshops sometimes about anti-Semitism and like how to fight anti-Semitism, how to understand it. And one of the things that we often try to emphasize to people is fighting anti-Semitism through relationships of solidarity with people who are who are also fighting related systems of oppression. And there's a part of the book that I actually found a bit difficult to read, which was when you described uh, the Jewish support for fascism in Italy as part of a broader historical trend of sort of looking to the state for alliance rather than with other people facing oppression from the state. Um, you actually referenced the work. Um, I think there's a historian was named Yosef Yerushalmi who mm -hmm. did this survey of, of Jewish history. Could you talk maybe a bit about this, this pattern that you were pointing to? Sure. Yeah, Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi was a famous historian who, one of his famous pieces is a piece that talks about uh, vertical alliances versus horizontal alliances in Jewish history. And Yerushalmi was, let, let me preface this by saying that he, he was writing at a certain point in time, soon after Hannah Arendt had written a sort of evaluation of, of how Jews had responded to Nazism and implying that Jews could have foreseen a little bit more wisely what uh, Nazism would do. And Yerushalmi takes this as a starting point uh, in response to that, that there was no way that Jews could have imagined that the state would turn against them in the way that the Nazi state did. And, uh, and the reason he gave for saying that there was no way that they could have known was to look at Jewish history from antiquity to modernity and, and see what kind of relationship the Jews had with the state. And he says that no matter what the period, Jews always sought and were almost always given protection from the state or by the state. And he shows that at almost no point in time were there horizontal alliances that made sense for the Jews, that were practical for the Jews. And horizontal alliances meaning groups that also suffered oppression from, from the state, as you implied, David. And uh, just, to give a, just to give an example, 
in the Middle Ages, the people who were also downtrodden, right, who tended to be masses of, of poor subjects, um, they didn't tend to be very friendly towards Jews. And so Jews feared them. They feared the mobs, they feared the masses, and they sought protection from, from the highest authorities, whether they were the Pope or whether it was the king. Um, and this is what Yerushalmi called these vertical alliances or royal alliances, he also calls them. And I, and I found echoes of that reverberating in, in the decisions that Italian Jews made because they sought protection from the state, from this working class threat. And this working class threat wasn't against them per se, right? But along with all the other Italian middle class, they saw an authoritarian government as the power that, that would be able to redeem them from this in the, in the 20s. So one other element of the Jewish community support for fascism that you write about in the book deals with um, Mussolini's plans for colonialism and imperialism outside of the Italian borders. Um, uh, you know, it's funny you should ask about that because I'm actually uh, now working on my, uh, a new book. My, my second book is going to be about exactly that question, Italian Jews and Italy's African empire or Italy's African colonies. Um, so it's very, very much close to my heart at the moment. Um, if we're looking at a whole range of reasons why Italian Jews didn't oppose Mussolini or did accept Mussolini, colonialism was, was definitely another reason. Most Italians, Jews included, were anxious to see Italy get a slice of the cake of Africa, or uh, they called it a place in the sun. That, that's how it was known. Uh, Africa was known. And this is exactly what Mussolini promised. And in a way, he delivered. He promised to expand Italy's empire. And he spoke in terms of restoring Italy to its glory that it had during antiquity, right, under ancient Rome. And most Italians liked this message. And, and when Mussolini took over Ethiopia in 1935, that was the zenith of his regime. That, that was a time when, when he received the most support from Italians, and again, Jews included. And again, there were exceptions. There were Jewish socialists who, who saw colonialism as abusive, but they were definitely the exception. I guess I'm just curious if there was anything about what excited the Jewish community about those plans for colonialism and imperialism that was different from any other Italians. That's a fantastic question, and it's not really something I get, I get to in the book, but it's something that I've discovered since in, in my new research, and that is that Italian Jews saw... Italian imperialism as a chance to reach out to Jews living in Africa. There were thousands of Jews living in Libya, which became an Italian colony in 1911-1912, and there were thousands of Jews living in Ethiopia, and Italian Jews saw it as their role and their duty to reach out to Jews living in Africa. But Jews in, in Africa, in Libya or in Ethiopia, some even in Somalia, weren't always keen on the interventions um, <laughs> by their say. European brethren. Italian Jews would say things like, it is up to us to bring the light of civilization to our Jewish brethren in Africa. To Italian Jews, that light wasn't there in the first place, right? That there was, that Jews in Africa were this benighted community that needed guidance from the enlightened white Jew, if that makes sense. And the assumption among Italian Jews was, just as most Europeans assumed, white ranked above dark, and 
Africans could only benefit from the progress that European civilization brought, right? This was the kind of language that was in vogue then. Yeah, it sort of reminds me a bit of the complicated relationship between French and Algerian Jews during uh, the French colonization of Algeria. Yes, I think France is definitely the go-to um, point of comparison. Uh, in the French cases, uh, Alliance Israelite Universelle, the, the, the Alliance for short, which was a French-Jewish body, and part of its rationale was to spread enlightenment among Jews particularly in the French Empire. And they, again, use very similar language that they need to educate the benighted Jews in Africa or in the Middle East and bring them up to date uh, with modern Western values. This seems to be not just an Italian story, but perhaps a European one in general, too. Okay, so moving a little bit away from the why part of this interview towards looking back a little bit... um, a good portion of, of the book deals with the way that Jewish support for fascism before 38 was kind of willfully forgotten at the end of the war. Can you kind of talk about this process and then why you think it took place? Absolutely. And let me just explain 1938 for listeners as well, uh, because that was a big turning point in this story of Jewish support for fascism. So as I said, Jews generally accepted fascism or or even supported it until summer of 1938. And then something very dramatic happens, which is that Italy, under the fascist regime, enacts a series of racial laws very similar to the Nuremberg laws. And these racial laws said things like Jews were not part of the Italian Aryan nation, they uh, had no right to serve in the military anymore, they had no right to work in many professions, they couldn't marry non-Jews, they couldn't send their children to school anymore, they couldn't employ non-Jews, and the list went on and on and on. And by 1939, 1940, there were dozens and dozens of regulations saying what Jews could and could not do. After that, and particularly after World War II, Jews were no longer supportive of fascism, right? They saw fascism as a movement that had betrayed them. And so Italian Jews tried to sort of minimize their pre-1938 support of fascism. So as a historian, you know, what we do is we go to archives and we go to as many archives as we can. We look at as many documents as we can in those archives. And um, in one of the archives I, I was in, in, um, in Italy, of a Jewish community, I was in lots of these, but in one of them, the archivist said, you have to run every single document that you consult by me and get approval to take notes from it, or to scan it, or to, you know, to use it in your research. Just to clarify how unusual this is, you know, if you go to an archive and you spend, let's say, two or three weeks there and you go through hundreds of documents or sometimes thousands of documents, imagine what it means to run every single document by the archivist who's also doing other things herself, right? This is very unusual. And I asked the archivist, may I inquire as to why I need to run every document by you? And she said, well, imagine that someone will later read your book and suddenly see there a mention of their grandparent or great-grandparent and that mention said that they were fascist. Imagine how the person reading your book would feel. So what this reflects to me, this very unusual request, is 
a deep sense of discomfort that Italian Jews have today with this chapter of their history, a deep sense of discomfort that their grandparents or great-grandparents had supported fascism. I think that discomfort is also maybe a reason why not many people have written about it today. You know, it isn't something easy to see if you see a memoir of someone saying, I was a fascist and proud of it. And I've seen so many memoirs like that. That's something that's not easy to grapple with these days. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest, before reading your book, I don't think I've ever read any real study engaging with you know, not even why Jews supported the fascist regime in Italy, but even the fact that they did at all. Why do you think there isn't more work on this? Like, is, do you think it's just a lot of blocks similar to the one you found at the archive? Um, that's an interesting question. I think it's not so much the barriers and it's not so much the primary sources being unavailable. I think it's more the kind of questions that researchers choose to ask. Um, I think Italian Jewish history is it's so understudied, and the sources are there, but I think it's, it's very understudied compared to certainly to German Jewry or French Jewry. And one of the reasons is demographics. I mean, Italian Jewry was a much smaller community in the modern period. It hovers at around 40,000, but I don't think its smallness makes it any less significant. And I think on the contrary, I think it's easier for us to research that kind of small community, which despite its smallness has left a vast, vast documentary footprint. So it's really, there's so many sources out there for historians to look at. So I'm just thinking about the the myth of the good Italian and the strength that it had, even among Italian Jews who stayed in Italy. And I'm wondering if you see echoes of that myth today or reverberations into things that are more in our present moment. Yeah, the, the myth of the good Italian is still very much around today. Many thought that there had been some mistake that Hitler had somehow forced Mussolini or twisted his arm into passing these laws. And that is part of how I explain the myth of the good Italian and, and it's taking such strong hold. And historians have questioned it, but there's a very big gap between what historians say and what uh, what the public perceives. And I would say public opinion, not just in Italy, but among anyone today, if, if you were to ask someone, do you know anything about, about the Holocaust in Italy? their knowledge is likely to come from non-academic sources. And I would say that one source that has really shaped what people think about Italy and the Holocaust today is Life is Beautiful. Um, have either of you watched it? Yeah, a long yeah. time ago though. Quite, quite some time ago. Yeah, yeah, it came out in 1998, so it's, it's a little bit dated, but I think it's still very much shown on TV, and it's, it's very well known. It was an incredibly successful film, and it, you can find it in any number of languages. And that is one of the films that I think has most shaped public opinion. It's just totally and utterly false. It's a beautiful film. It's very, very lovely to watch, but um, it sells a version of history that just didn't happen. And just to give one very brief example, it shows a Jewish man marrying a Catholic woman sometime around 1939. These are the two heroes of the, the, the hero and the heroine of the, of the film. And that just couldn't have happened, right? Or it was almost impossible for that to happen under the racial laws. So you get a sense of, of 1930s and 1940s Italy as being a very benign place for Jews to live. Here they are really showing Italians as very much benign actors in the 1930s and World War II. And and I think that Italy isn't alone in this flattering image that it has. And 
other countries grapple with their past and what they did in World War Two and and what their citizens did in World War Two and some countries are actually so nervous about this that they enact laws and uh, Poland's Holocaust law comes into mind. This is a law that was enacted just recently, the last couple of years, and it was in response to new scholarship about Polish culpability during World War II and saying how Poland had a hand in persecuting Jews. And the result was a law that actually says you cannot accuse Poland of those kind of things now, and if you do, uh, you'll be fined. The, the original law actually said if you do, you'll go to prison. So the question of what role non-Jews played in the persecution of Jews in World War II is still a very thorny question today, uh, more than you might think, right, given that so many years have passed since then, but um, it's still thorny enough and painful enough to uh, trigger new legislation in some countries. Well, Sherry, I want to thank you for writing the book, first of all, but also for taking the time to talk with us. Um, I know we've taken a lot of your time. Thanks for speaking with us on the show today. Thank you so much for your excellent questions, some of which I still have to think about and really relate to my new research and will definitely help me along the way. So have a great day and Take hope care. you keep warm and freezing in Canada. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. bye. Thanks. Take out your groggers, put them away, it's Purim Katan. It's time for Shkoyak. Shkoyak! Shkoyak! Welcome back to the world-renowned segment. Um, we get emails about it on a daily basis. Uh, none of this is true. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Don't make those jokes, David. You are in Shkoyak. Welcome, everyone. Um, it's been a little bit since our last Shkoyach, so David and I are actually going to take liberty and give a bunch of mini Shkoyachs. Mm-hmm. So David, what is your Shkoyach or Shkoyachs for the day? So today I'm actually giving two Shkoyachs because, uh, yeah, we've been away for a while and just want to cover some ground. Uh, but since we last were on the show, Jewish Voice for Peace, who you know, a group that we've uh, talked about a lot in the show, have officially taken a position against Zionism as a part of their platform. Uh, And it's been a long time coming. You know, they've been doing a lot of work to educate their membership about this in the past few years. Uh, So I just want to give a shkoyach to Jewish Voice for Peace for taking this really enormous step. Yeah, no, a double shkoyach for me. And also for folks who are listening who haven't seen the website, check out the website. It's actually a great resource. Yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. They have a lot of writing and and educational material about why they made this decision. You know, it's not all perfect, but it's it's an incredibly positive development. Like, it's such a huge organization. And uh, shkoyach again to them. Yeah, big thumbs up. Two thumbs. Another attached shkoyach I'd like to give is uh, here on this side of the border, uh, Independent Jewish Voices Canada. They've had a campaign for a really long time trying to get the Canadian government to revoke the tax-exempt status of the Jewish National Fund here. They're formerly a charitable organization here, so they have to pay taxes. David, I have a question. Mm -hmm. If people have listened to a particular Jewish podcast in the past, is it possible that they've come across a conversation about this before? Oh, yeah. we Okay, so <laughs> earlier on in the show, uh, a few years ago, we we did an interview with someone from Independent Jewish Voices. We mentioned this campaign, uh, but we also spoke with someone named Ismail Zaid, who is a retired professor out in Halifax. And uh, Ismail was actually born in a Palestinian village that was depopulated and ethnically cleansed by Israel to create something called Canada Park, which was a JNF Canada project. 
Um, Ismael, along with two or three other people, filed a complaint against the JNF a few years back, and Independent Jewish Voices backed this, and as a result, the Canadian government is now auditing JNF Canada, so it's a step forward in this campaign. It's been getting a lot of media attention, media traction, and I'm not sure if it's directly a result of this, but... A few days before we recorded this, another Zionist charity called Beth Oloth got their tax-exempt status revoked uh, since they were giving money to activities of the IDF, supporting settler activity in the West Bank. So square to Independent Jewish Voices for pushing this campaign along. Um, David, are you pandering to a majority of the audience? Well, uh, given the information we have from SoundCloud.com, a very small amount of people listening are actually from the country we live in. So I don't know about the second one, maybe the first. David, we're not allowed to promo uh, companies on this podcast, so... Stricken from the record. Okay, great. Um, so you gave a shkoyach to JVP, you gave a shkoyach to IJV. Do you have any others? So my other shkoyach is to a struggle that's escalated a lot since we've last released a show, uh, which is the struggle out in Unistoten camp, which I'm sure people have been reading about and hearing about uh, since that time. The Unistoten camp was something that was created about 10 years ago. It's on unceded uh, Wet'suwet'en territory out in the West Coast. And over that 10 years, it's been in the path of several different pipeline projects by several different companies. And most recently, a company called Coastal GasLink was able to get the government to give it a legal injunction to go onto their territory and get work started. This led to the RCMP storming the gates around the territory. Yeah, and I mean, this has kind of been front and center on the Twitter and news that we consume. But for folks who are less familiar, where should folks look to learn more about this? Um, well, I mean, uh, Submedia, which is a, an anarchist media project based out of Montreal, has been getting out a lot of great information about what's going on with that struggle. They've had a relationship with folks at Unistoten for some time. Also, uh, there's a reporter who's usually based in Toronto, uh, Michael Toledano, who's been out there doing a lot of great reporting. Uh, but but I, want, I just want to give my shkoyach to Indigenous land defenders out there who've been pushing through this really difficult time, as well as people around the country who have been engaging in solidarity actions, uh, disrupting and shutting down the machinery of colonialism so that there can be no business as usual along as, as long as this is continuing to happen. Well, I guess for the third time, I'm going to be co-signing your shkoyach and um, giving a big shout out to the folks on the West Coast and to everyone else who's engaged in solidarity actions across the territory that we're on. So I tried to squeeze a lot in there, but uh, I'm handing it over to you, Sam. What is your shkoyach for this episode? I'd like to give an absolutely enormous shkoyach to Liana Fink, who is a cartoonist and drew one of my favorite pieces of art of the year 2019 and maybe 2018 and 2017. For folks who do not receive Jewish Currents magazine or who are not on Jewish Twitter, um, this is a cartoon that I'm going to try my best to describe right now. Um, it oh, yeah, is, is going to be hard. <laughs> we'll have a link in the show notes for people who aren't who did not get this uh, comic delivered to your home because you're a Jewish current subscriber. But David, can I try uh, to describe this cartoon? Okay. Um, it is a drawing of two people. Okay. How would you describe the style? I okay. So it's black and white. Um, Very minimalist. Minimalist, sure. And ultimately, it's two people. On the left side of the page, you have a person with a speech bubble that says Jews, and then another speech bubble that says Jews. And then the other person who's responding, or however you want to think about how the process started, the other person has three speech bubbles, and they say Jews, Jews, and Jews. And under this cartoon is a box, and in that box it says Jews. And what else is in the box? Surrounding the word Jews are brackets as well. Uh, what do the brackets mean? Uh, it means Jews, David. <laughs> <laughs> How did this comic come to your attention? This comic came to my attention because the fine folks at Canada Post 
delivered this piece of mail to my home. Um, I'm a subscriber of Jewish Currents Magazine, and I believe that they often send art as part of their winter edition. Mm-hmm. And this was the piece of art that I think is now in the homes of many lefty Jews across North America. Yeah, I mean, I, I walked through a snowstorm yesterday to my old apartment to get some mail that was there, and it was a big brown envelope. When I got home, it was just this this comic <laughs> inside, which I was very happy to receive. And and I think I just want to add to your square, which is that Jewish Currents is killing it right now. I'm just consistently impressed with everything that they're doing and putting out, uh, both online and in print. Um, so shkoyach to them. Yeah, shout out to them. But I don't want to take away from um, Liana Fink's glory over here, David. Uh, this very simple cartoon does such a fantastic job of encapsulating what we do um, <laughs> and what many of our friends do. Yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> I mean, probably for worse, but still. <laughs> um, so do you have any other shkoyachs uh, for today? Yes, I have a second shkoyach that's a little harder to pin down. This is going to be a hard one to navigate through, but let me just give it a whirl and we'll see what happens. Putting on my seatbelt. Um, I'd like to give a shkoyach to the decision that I made to stop following the bouncing balls of American politics. Oh. I think I'd been afflicted for many years of opening the internet and following every small thing that every dumb senator or politician did. That's a lot to keep track of. And I think it just polluted my brain for so many years. And I kind of passed it off as saying, oh, this is my this is my TV. This is my soap opera. I'm following it. I'm paying attention. But it, I think, was really damaging, David. And the combination of having to study for the bar exam and also your ongoing counsel that I stop <laughs> engaging <laughs> with the minutia of political stories and stop buying into the liberal narratives that are presented. That combination really helped. And um, I think I'm cured, David. Oh, wow. Yes. And I'm glad that's had a positive effect. It's just so much stupid shit that I don't need to care about and that I should not spend any brain energy on. Yeah, I also feel like there's a critical mass of it compared to like even 10 years ago, what that meant, how many stories like that were available compared to now is it, very unbelievable. different. Yeah, engaging with everything at this point is just impossible. Yeah, 100%. Because on the one hand, you got to read the initial story, then you got to read the people tweeting in response to the story, then you got to read the people who are responding to the responses. And it's just, that's three hours. And then a whole new thing happens. And it's just, irrelevant to the day-to-day realities of the majority of people and me. Well, I'm glad to have you back, Sam. (laughs) From both the clutches of uh, legal study and also from the world of political reporting. Yeah. Yeah. So a big shout out to the idea of refusing to engage with the bouncing ball of useless political media. And um, if anyone needs any tips on how to detox, just send us an email, trafepodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, that about sums it up for me. Another case closed by Trafe Podcast. <laughs> so that's our episode for today. Thank you all for staying on board. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, I like Trafe Podcast. I'm not in love with the Trafe Podcast, but... I would like to communicate with the listeners of the Trade Podcast. You're in luck, my friend. <laughs> Sam, what do we have for them? Uh, we have a brand new voice memo that you can send to us. Um, please make it less than one minute. Include your name, where you're at, and uh, what you want to talk about. Really, it could be anything that vaguely relates to the topics of the show. I'm getting a stare from Dave right now because it is not anything. Yeah, if we think it's bad, <laughs> we don't play it. But no, ultimately, please send voice memos. We've thought about it as a way for folks who listen to communicate with other folks who are listening. So yeah, please send stuff along. 
And again, if you have any input in terms of the topics you'd like to see us talking about on the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can just send us an email at trafepodcast at gmail.com. Trafe Podcast is Sam Beck and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks to everyone who helps make Trafe Podcast happen. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram at Trafe Podcast, T-R-E-Y-F, and send us comments, suggestions, or hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Why are we doing it now and not the Jewish near? Yeah, uh, we no good reason. Assimilationists. <laughs> <laughs>